Welcome to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. I'm Solveig Brown, and today I'm joined by Craig Warren, who is the CEO for Washburn Center for Children. Our conversation is going to focus on children's mental health. A recent Pew survey found that mental health tops the list of things that parents worry about. In particular, about 40% of American parents worry that their children might struggle with anxiety or depression. Children's mental health has become such a concern in the U.S. that it was declared a national health emergency in 2021. Since many of our mentees and mentors are parents, grandparents, or caregivers, we wanted to address this issue. Before we begin our conversation, I'd like to give you all some background information on Craig. Craig Warren was named Washburn Center for Children's CEO in 2022 and previously served as Washburn's Chief Administrative Officer. Craig is the first BIPOC CEO in the organization's 140-year history. Washburn Center for Children is Minnesota's leading mental health center, delivering transformative mental health services to children and their families at three clinics in over 40 schools, in children's homes, and wherever they are needed. Craig is a social impact catalyst with over 25 years of strategic planning, service delivery, EDI, and consulting experience in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. He is motivated by a desire to create more equitable community outcomes around education, income, employment, and health. Prior to joining Washburn Center, Craig served as Vice President of Enterprise Solutions at Minnesota Children's Museum. His professional experience also includes leadership roles at Greater Twin Cities United Way, Best Buy, Rockwell Automation, the Coca-Cola Company, Towers Parent, and the United States Army. Craig earned his master's degree from the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago and his bachelor's from the John Hopkins University. He is a qualified administrator of intercultural development inventory. Craig has been a mentor for Mentium since 2019. Welcome, Craig. I am so happy to have you as a guest today. It's an honor to be here, Salve. Thanks for having me. Craig, can you please start us off by giving us some context around the growing mental health crisis for American children? Definitely. And one thing I'd note is that the children's mental health crisis that we're currently navigating actually preceded COVID. And that's one of the things that's more troubling about what's happening. There already was a children's mental health crisis before COVID. Even prior to COVID, one in five children from the ages up to age 18 said they were experiencing anxiety or depression or suicidal ideation or grief or loss. That's one in five and that was prior to COVID. And that's only increased with a variety of things that happened during COVID, with the social unrest and reckoning that happened with the murder of George Floyd, with an increase in the number of school shootings in schools and school-related shootings, that number has only grown since then. But it's just important to remember that existed prior to COVID, but it's only, it's only gotten worse. And it's gotten worse in some pretty scary ways, I think, when you think about the fact that just taking ninth graders, I think it was over 9% of ninth graders said that they thought about attempting suicide in the past year. And that's just looking at ninth graders alone. If you look at some of the other things that are happening, with, I know, specific to Minnesota, over 43% of the LGBTQ youth 
in Minnesota has said that the ongoing debates around anti-gay and anti-trans legislation have negatively impacted their mental health. That's almost 50% of those kids. So we're seeing overall just a huge kind of increase in terms of mental health issues that our kids are facing. But that existed before COVID and things with COVID, obviously with the grief and loss that came with COVID, with the grief and loss that comes with kind of violence in schools, with the impact that has on kids as violence even happens in a school, even if it's not their school, as we see things around the economy where caregivers may be losing their jobs, as we see schools moving back from several years of virtual back into in-person. I mean, I could go on and on around the things that are happening in the external society at scale that have negatively impacted kids' mental health. And that doesn't even deal with the things that may be personal to kids, that the trauma that an individual child has experienced It's not even related to any of those things that are happening in the external environment. Yeah, Craig, those are sobering and frankly, heart-wrenching statistics, you know, and I thank you for noting that this was an issue prior to COVID Mm -hmm. and COVID just exacerbated an issue that was already prevalent. Washburn Center for Children's mission is to nurture every child and family's well-being and full potential through transformative children's mental health care. I love that mission statement. Can you tell us more about your mission and what Washburn Center for Children does? So our focus at a macro level, and this is what kind of gets me up every day, is we provide hope. If you have a child in your life who is suffering from some type of mental illness, It's not like when you break an arm or you have a fever where it's very clear you have a fever, we know where to go for that. You break your arm or you have a strain, you know where to go for that. And it's pretty clear kind of what the symptoms are and kind of what you're dealing with. When you're dealing with children and mental health, often it's not clear and people may not intuitively go to that something is a mental health issue. They may think there are other things going on. It's just part of their development. So as you're struggling with that as a caregiver, it can be hard to even suss out that what you're dealing with may be a mental health issue, and it can be a confusing and sort of long nonlinear journey for you to figure out, oh, there is something going on with my child, and I think it's a mental health issue, and I need to go to a mental health provider. But once you figure that out, you may not know where to go with that. So I feel like we bring hope because when people figure out there is a place that all we do is take care of kids and families. We don't do anything with adults who are not, you know, part of the ecosystem of a child, and there's a place where whatever's going on with my child, I can go to this place and they focus on mental health with children. And all of our work is primarily from an outpatient perspective, but we have a wide continuum of care from someone who may need to see one of our clinicians once a month or once a week to crisis stabilization, where someone's on the cusp of maybe needing residential treatment or inpatient treatment, or they're getting, you know, they've been, they're coming out of one of those environments like that. And we want to prevent them from going back in We have to go in people's homes multiple times a week. So we kind of have this wide continuum of outpatient care. So whatever a child needs up to the point of where they may need to be hospitalized or they may need residential treatment, we have a wide continuum of care for that that we provide. And we do it, we're community-based. So it's not like you just come to our office. We do have three offices around the Twin Cities, but we also have partnerships with several school districts where we have clinicians embedded in over 40 schools. We have partnerships for, with several healthcare systems where when someone is getting discharged, a partner with them for someone who is admitted to get them connected with a therapist before they're discharged. 
so that they don't have to go through the, oh, my child's been discharged. How do I go find someone? Nope, you're already connected with your therapist before your discharge. There's a certain number of visits you get with that. So we kind of have this very robust continuum of care really focused on supporting the mental health of kids and their families. That is an amazing and much needed grouping of resources that you provide for the community. I like that analogy that if your child has a broken leg, you know what to do. But like you said, mental health issues aren't always so clear cut. So I like that you are a place where people can get the resources they need and find out what they don't even necessarily know about this journey with their kids. Craig, there is currently a nationwide shortage of mental health professionals. I've heard people talking, especially during COVID, about how they could not get in to see a therapist or find a therapist. A recent report states that 150 million Americans live in areas that are federally designated as having a mental health professional shortage. There is also a gap in who has access to mental health care. How did we get here? I believe it's because there's been systematic underinvestment in really creating a broader mental health system. So that does a broader mental health system really does not exist at a national level. And when you dial that in for kids, there's even less of a system that was built for that. And that goes back to, frankly, at a high level, society, societal perceptions regarding mental health. If you think about this, to go with what I was talking about earlier, when you break your arm or you have a fever, you go to a doctor. Well, there's a societal value for doctors. I mean, how many medical TV shows are there and have there? There's always a show about people being doctors or nurses on there because that's raised up as an honorable profession. You can make a good income doing that. Going to medical school is a very revered type of thing. There's income associated with that where society places value on that. So you get compensated for doing that work. And that translates into policies and into where resources and reimbursement rates and everything like that, where that's at a different rate where people invest in that because frankly, there's resources allocated that and you can make money on that. You look at mental health. How many people do you know who as a child or a four or five-year-old were saying, I want to grow up and be a therapist or a mental health professional? How many times did you see that profession represented in a cartoon or in TV or anywhere, people talking about doing that? And that has an impact in terms of people's willingness to even be aware of that mental health is a thing that is an illness that you need support for and also for people valuing investing in the care around that. So I think it starts with this sort of stigma and perception that has existed around mental health that has translated into investing from a government perspective and even from a commercial perspective in those services and valuing them. And that translates into people not valuing it. So, I mean, I have nothing against professional sports, nothing against that. But the fact that you have someone who plays a sport for a living and they get millions and millions of dollars and they don't even play for the full year, like the season is not even the full year and they get millions and millions of dollars if they're the top of the game for that, for playing this sport. But we have folks like teachers and mental health professionals who we struggle to find people, who we struggle to get them an equitable wage, who have a huge impact on our society and society does not value them in the same way. And you see the resources put against that. So I think there's been a structural underinvestment that goes into the reimbursement rates for mental health are much lower than the reimbursement rates are for things like getting a broken arm or getting admitted to the hospital for that. Um, If you look at the schools, even structurally within the schools, you have to be licensed to be a mental health professional. So you've got to go to grad school and get a master's degree or get a doctoral degree. In order to do that, you have to do an internship, a practicum while you're in the course of doing that. By those, by in Minnesota with the licensing board, you can't get paid for that internship. 
So you're going to school in a field that's not one that's valued where people are paying top dollar, where you're probably going to have to take out a loan to do that. And during the course of going to school, it's going to be hard to work to do your class load and you have to do an internship on top of that and to work on top of that. I don't know that I want to go into that profession. It's what some people are thinking. I'm, I may do other things with that. So there's not a robust pipeline of people going into the schools because of some of the challenges with that, with not being paid and having to take on debt. And then when you look at the income you earn outside of that and what people are able to pay is tied to the reimbursement rates. And like for Washburn, we're community-based. So your income will not be a barrier to you receiving services from us. What that means is over 50% of the clients that we serve get some of their insurance through some type of either Medicaid or some type of state medical assistance program. The state determines those rates. If the state determines that we're going to reimburse more for you to go to the hospital for a broken arm or for a fever than we do for mental health, and we're relying on that for our funding model, that's going to constrain how we can recruit people and how we can pay them to say, I'm going to go to school and make my money back on that. So, I mean, I could go on and on around this, but there are structural underinvestments in a variety of aspects of our mental health system that make it challenging for people to attract people to the field and make it challenging for them to stay in the field that contribute to that shortage. And the work has gotten harder. Like one of the, I hesitate to call it a silver lining, but during the course of COVID, one of the things that's happened was a shift in the stigma regarding mental health. So even at the beginning of it, with I think the actions of Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles were very visible kind of top tier athletes who were like, we're struggling with mental health issues and talking about that. And I think that there still is a stigma, but that stigma shifted with that. And then everyone saw the impact of COVID on kids. Like everyone who had a kid or knew a kid felt like, oh, there's something going on and this wasn't great for that. So there's even a broader understanding of kind of the mental health challenges that kids are facing come out of that combined with a shift in the stigma, which meant demand went up. Well, demand went up in a system that we hadn't had under invested in, so there wasn't a whole bunch of capacity to meet that demand. So you hear these things where there's wait list because there's not capacity in the system to deal with this demand. There's not people going to school for this in large numbers. The people who are doing it, it's been hard if you're a mental health professional during the last couple of years. So some people are like, I don't wanna do this anymore. It's not even I want to do it to make more money or something. It's like, this is hard. I want to go do something else because carrying the burden and walking alongside of these families is tough and I'm burnt out and I just don't want to do it anymore. So they're leaving the field and there's not a strong pipeline of people coming in. All that's contributing to these, you know, this combination, this perfect storm of factors that's making it challenging for families and kids to get the support they need because there just is not capacity in the system because we haven't built that capacity in the system at a structural level. Craig, thank you for providing that context of that under how that underinvestment is playing out now and that there's a lot of work to be done to fix the system. But right now there's just such a squeeze on the resources from for every reason that you pointed out. You know, like you said, there's that silver lining is that there's less of a stigma on it. So hopefully that will shift into different legislation, different practices, but that takes time. Mm -hmm. We're still kind of at this point right now. So, so many of our listeners are, you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. What are the signs that caregivers should look for that a child may be experiencing anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges? I think it really varies developmentally. So I just want to name that depending on the age, 
what that looks like can look very different. But I would say in general, across all ages, changes in your relationship with the children in your life. If there's some energy or change in the dynamic, that could be an indication that there's a mental health issue. Changes in how the child or children in your life talk about themselves. Were they kind of optimistic and kind of positive about themselves? And you hear kind of disparaging or derogatory comments directed at themselves or at other people, that can be an indication that there's a mental health issue. Like noticeable changes in their habits. They're not sleeping enough. They're not sleeping straight through the night. They're sleeping more than they were. They're not bathing as frequently. They used to be very fastidious about how they dressed and now they don't care about their, their dress. So things in their daily habits that are sort of routines where you see something in the routine has changed. And then most obviously, if a child experiences some type of trauma, like you can almost presume independent of any type of behavioral change, if they experienced a traumatic event, if they experienced a loss, like you're going through a parental divorce or a separation, or they had a, you know, a loss in the family or the loss of a pet or something like that, any type of traumatic event should also be a kind of a flag for a caregiver to be mindful of. How is the child responding to this and are any of these other things showing up? And I'd say for younger children, they can't articulate their feelings as well. So that may really may look like they're having nightmares, like more frequently having nightmares, or they never had nightmares before they're having nightmares, or they have difficulty falling asleep, whereas before they used to kind of sleep like a log, and now like they're really struggling to fall asleep. Are they having difficulty playing? Like, are they worried and having anxiety to the point and it gets in the way with them, inter, you know, playing with people or learning in school where they're distracted in school or they're not following directions to the degree that they did in the past? Or are they angry? Like, are they just more irritable or are they angry or have this rage that you feel like comes out of nowhere that's kind of atypical of how they typically acted with a child, with a younger child who may not be able to fully express themselves? It's going to play out in these behaviors that you have to be mindful of, those behaviors may be representative of a mental health issue or trauma, not just a child acting out and it's just normal child behavior, but you kind of have to be attentive to that. And with teens, I would say it's a little bit easier because you have more of a pattern of behavior and they can express more what's going on with them. But if they're hiding or isolating, like with teens where someone who wasn't, who was very outgoing and engaged with the family or with friends and suddenly you've noticed they're not hanging out with friends anymore. They're kind of withdrawing from the family. That would be an indicator. If they're not focused, like suddenly they were locked on and they had a thing that they did all the time and suddenly that thing, they can't seem to focus on their academics. Or maybe they were doing a sport or playing an instrument or something and they're not as focused as they were in the past. That may be indicative of something. An increase in aggressive behaviors with a teen where someone, a child who wasn't particularly aggressive before suddenly begins behaving in a very aggressive or direct manner, that may be indicative of something. If they're having pan attacks or depressive episodes with a teen, that a teen, you can kind of tell what that looks like. Oh, they're having panic attacks or they're having depressive episodes. That's indicative or something. If their friendships fall off, like there's, they used to have a close group of friends that they've known forever and suddenly they're not, they don't have those friends anymore or their friends have changed with that. So those are just some of the things that differ a little bit by age, that can be indicative of someone may need some additional support and it's worth talking or exploring with someone around seeking support. So, yeah, that's a good point. So if you suspect your child is having mental health challenges, what should you do or how do you go about getting that support that they need or that you might need? You know, I'd start with the school. I mean, most of the children that we deal with are school age, either in, they're in a daycare environment or they're in elementary or high school. 
So if you're, you know, you're in a, an environment where your child is in an academic environment, talk to the teachers. The school may have talked to a teacher, talk to as the school may have a social worker. The school may even have a mental health professional that's on staff in the school or that the district has access to. So I'd start with, with those places. Another place to start with is a pediatrician. Um, if you're experiencing something with your child, check in with your child's pediatrician and say, this is what we're seeing and sort of check in with a pediatrician to set, you know, have them dig a little deeper into it or perhaps make a referral for that. And you can always just find a provider and do an assessment, just like do a holistic assessment that developmentally and socially and mentally kind of assesses your child to kind of see how that they're, how they're doing. And most of the things that I've talked about apply to if your child is not in crisis. Obviously, if you feel like some of the things I talked about are at a crisis level, you want to go to an, you know, an emergency room or something like that and get your child immediate care. That sort of assumes that you feel like something's going on, but you're not sure, but you don't feel it's like at a point of crisis where your child may be harming themselves or harming others. If you're in that type of situation, you know, going to an emergency room or something like that, or there's a 988 line, and then some counties also have crisis teams that you can access to in addition to depending on where you live. And I'd also just say the web, because the web is ever present, there is a National Alliance on Mental Health that has a phenomenal set of resources across all ages and for adults and for children and for everyone. They have a phenomenal website. There is Mental Health America has a website that has great resources for parents and caregivers. The usmentalhealth.gov site is another site that has resources. And if you're in Minnesota or not, washburn.org, we have a pretty decent website that has quite a few resources to support parents and caregivers as well. Yeah, thank you for providing just that practical advice on what you should do. So what would you suggest as some best practices that parents and caregivers can teach children to help them be more resilient? I mean, I think a part of that is around um, taking care of yourself. Kids watch everything that the adults that they're around do, whether you think they're watching it or not. So as we're experiencing all this, where more and more kids may be struggling with a mental illness, you role modeling, what does that look like? You role modeling, expressing what's going on for you. You role modeling, listen to the child and other people around you and what's going on with them. You role modeling as you get stressed out and how do you react and respond when you experience anxiety or you get stressed out or you experience things, how are you responding to that? Are you taking time to breathe? Are you taking time to pause? Are you taking time to be curious and get support? Like your kids watch those things more than you would think. So really how you role model and show up when you're dealing with your own stuff really is role modeling for your kids, how they can navigate navigate through things. Yeah, that's great advice. A recent study indicates that one in 14 children has a caregiver with poor mental health, which is in line with the World Health Organization study that found that the pandemic has triggered a 25% increase in anxiety and depression worldwide. So what are your suggestions for how people can address their own mental health issues, especially if they are a parent or caregiver? I mean, I know it's somewhat cliched, but self-care is a real thing, like Mm -hmm. for your broader holistic health and certainly for mental health. And some people used to talk about mental health days, and that was kind of said pejoratively and negatively, like that's not a real thing. And that is a real thing. And particularly if you're a caregiver where you're taking care of that. So your self-care, your physical well-being and your mental well-being, and the two are connected. You're taking care of your physical kind of health does impact your mental health and and vice versa. So being mindful of, are you taking care of your physical health and mental health? 
are you taking the, the time and have the opportunity? Everyone may not have the opportunity or the support to be able to do that, but where you are, are you taking advantage of that is important because as I said, kids are watching you. So that has the impact on you being at a place physically and emotionally and mentally where you can support their kids if they are navigating something. And just for you to do that for your own self, to have the energy for that is so important. And just being calm and being self-aware. And I will say for an adult, there still are stigmas around this, but you might need mental health support yourself. Getting a therapist for yourself, independent of anything else, can be something that can support your mental health. Because as you said, there's a crisis for kids, but it's not great for adults either coming out of that. And we all would benefit from some of that support as well and being open and transparent around getting the support that we need if we need mental health support so that we can be there to support our kids if they you know, need to navigate something as well. Craig, thank you for that great reminder of the importance of self-care. I hear over and over from people that they're so busy, that tends to be the thing that falls off their plate. And so I appreciate that you are just reminding people that is essential, especially if you're a caregiver and a parent, that you're not only modeling that self-care, but it also makes you better able to deal with whatever comes up at work or personally or with your kids. Craig, we have time for one final question. I want to circle back to you know, just the state of where we are at right now of the structural situation. So what can individuals do to ensure that legislation gets passed to support equal access to mental health care to help fix a system that is clearly broken? I'd find out, find out who your legislators are and make them aware of the fact that you care about mental health and children's mental health and what your story is. And at all levels of that, particularly, I know, in, you know, we're in Minnesota and in Minnesota, the state has quite a bit of control over the investments that are made on that and invest quite a bit of money on that. So there really is an opportunity to reach out to the state senators and the state representatives and make them aware of the fact that there are constituents who care deeply about children's mental health is one thing. In Minnesota, Washburn is a part of an organization called the Mental Health Legislative Network, which is a grouping of like 40 provider and advocacy organizations that kind of advocate for mental health more broadly. And we actually come together and draft legislation that we advocate for during the state legislative session. So if there's an organization like that in your state where there's a, a collective of mental health organizations or there's a particular mental health organization that has a policy agenda, support that organization, understand what their legislative agenda is. And as their bills are moving through the process, make sure you're tracking that and letting your legislator know, hey, I support Senate number whatever that's about school-linked mental health funding. And my child benefited from this. And I want you to know that. And I'm one of your constituents because that makes a huge difference at the state level because people think, you know, I know there's debates around what's the value of voting and everything like that. I'm a proponent of voting and particularly at the state level. Most people don't engage with their state legislators. So when there's you get five or 20 people that come in on an issue, even a legislator who that may not be their issue is going to pay attention to the fact that a whole bunch of people don't connect with me. And I've got people that very passionately across a wide range of my constituency are talking about this. I need to pay attention to this and figure out what my position is or solidify my position on that. So engaging in that process at the state level, at the county level, at the municipal level, understanding wherever you're at where there are the levers that can be pulled legislatively and engaging with those elected officials to make them aware of how important this is. 
That is great advice of how important that is. I think you're right that people sometimes feel like, oh, it doesn't matter. It won't make a mm -hmm. difference. But like you said, because not a lot of people are reaching out, you get enough people all of a sudden that will be on their mind that this is an important issue for parents and constituents. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I appreciate you sharing your expertise on, you know, defining the current mental health situation, on how to respond to mental health challenges, your call to action to get legislation passed to support better mental health care. And above all, you've provided us a sense of hope that things can get better for our kids and our future. We will put the resources that Craig mentioned on this show notes of this episode, but I just also want to note that, like Craig said, Washburn Center for Children's website has fantastic resources for caregivers and clinicians in dealing with mental health issues that affect children, such as anxiety, stress, depression, bullying, adapting to change, self-esteem, interpersonal communication, feelings, community violence, grief and loss, friendships, identity, school, learning, nutrition, and sleep. They've got fantastic articles and it just is a great place to start. And as I said, the other resources that Craig mentioned will be in the show notes. Craig, thank you for all that you and your entire team at Washburn do to nurture every child and family's well-being and full potential through transformative children's mental health care. It has been truly inspiring to sit down and have this conversation with you. And please tell your team that we all at the Mentim community appreciate that everything that you're doing to help our kids. Well, thanks, Alve. Well, thank you all for listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. Children's mental health is such an important topic, so please share this episode with friends and colleagues. We have many great episodes lined up, and we look forward to having you back next time.